The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Let's nice see you tonight. We live in a world that um, appears to be quite complicated and uh, it's hard to get our footing a lot of the time. We feel pulled in a lot of different directions. We see things, hear things, and the hearts move. We experience suffering in our own life directly. We see happiness and suffering arising in other people's lives where we find the heart interested and all kinds of things. And it can feel, you know, as a human being, it can feel a little confusing what what's actually relevant. So one of the things I've really appreciated about the Buddhist teachings is this emphasis, and it's not a dismissal of the world, but it's, uh, you know, the Buddha calls it the middle way, where we recognize that as relevant as the world is, and the world being like what we need to do here in Minneapolis to make it a nicer community, and the world includes what I need to do to get my life in order, like get my taxes done, or and any, you know, whatever dimension of the world we might be thinking about, it's not a rejection of that, and it's not somehow believing that when or if I get my taxes done, that something fundamentally will be transformed. You know, like because there have been so many times when we've actually taken care of some worldly business, got that closet cleared out, shoveled the walk, did our taxes, made our dinner, you know, whatever it might have been, and doesn't really change things. So it's not that we can dismiss it or to somehow have the attitude that these worldly things don't matter. That's clearly not the answer. But it also isn't the answer to think that these worldly things ultimately matter or change things. Because there's always more worldly things to do. It doesn't really end. So how to find that middle way where the mind isn't, in a sense, hoping that when I get this all taken care of, when I get to the bottom of my to-do list, address all my hopes and dreams, get rid of all the monsters under the bed, then, you know, we never have that utopian experience. Because there's always another thing. It's just really built in to the fabric of life. And because that can be frustrating, thinking we're going to get somewhere by taking care of the business of the world, we get frustrated, and then we want to give up on the world. Like, I'm tired of shoveling the walk. I'm tired of having to cook for myself every day. I'm tired of needing to pay taxes, needing to save money for retirement. I just want to be done. I'm tired of having to exercise my body. And so there's this tendency of our mind to swing back and forth from getting excited, thinking that when we take care of life's business, that something fundamental will shift and we'll be safe in some existential sense, 
to this other pole of feeling frustrated, almost betrayed, that as hard as I've worked, as many hoops as I've jumped through, I still have more hoops to jump through, that it hasn't stopped or ceased. So one way to uh, think about this middle way, that's neither of those two, the rejection of life and the obligations of life, or the attachment to the obligations of life, thinking that when I accomplish these things, become these things, that something fundamentally will have shifted, and now I will enter the realm of being a happy human being, forever safe. And one way to think about that middle way is uh, this instruction coming out of the Buddhist teachings of the relevancy of the mind itself. And again, as we get interested in the mind, or you could say as we get interested in the heart, it's not a rejection of the world at all. It's not that nihilistic, I'm tired, tired of doing all the things that need to be done in the world. And it's not just another version of doing something in the world. So instead of building the porch in the back of the house, we're going to learn to meditate. And, you know, instead of becoming the person who knows three languages, we're the person who can concentrate their mind, or we're the person who understands Buddhism. So Buddhism can be just another worldly thing, too. Or Buddhism can be a way to reject worldly things. But neither of those are Buddhism or the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha is really asking us that in this play of taking care of business and being frustrated in our taking care of business, in that play, what we call our life, that to get really interested in the mind. And, and instead of believing our thoughts about how important it is, the self-importance about getting my to-do list done, or the self-importance that we have sometimes about feeling overwhelmed by our to-do list and wanting it just to be over with, tired of having a to-do list, having a life, having responsibilities, instead of the self-importance of those two poles, we get more and more interested in the mind that's experiencing this play between these two poles. Investing in life, rejecting life. We get interested in the mind that's knowing that. And this is a, this is a real paradigm shift for us. It's really, we're not really, haven't really entered the practice, the path of practice, until to some degree we understand that shift where what we're doing here is not about fixing our life, but it's also not about ignoring the demands of life. We do want to be more skillful in life, but our approach to being more skillful at accomplishing our to-do list isn't to think about our to-do list or to actually do our to-do list. It's to get interested in the mind that's relating to the to-do list. What is this mind, this space of the mind? And in thinking, instead of thinking about the mind as being this thing up here, it's more useful, I think, to think of the mind as this. This, right now, this experience is a reflection of the mind. In fact, the only way to really understand the mind is to get to know the reflections of the mind. And the reflection of the mind is our experience in any moment, because Remember, this experience is a mind experience. 
everything we know, everything we've experienced about the world has been a mind experience. That's the only way for us to know anything, is through the mind. We are sensitive, apparently, and through this process of being sensitive, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, through this process of being sensitive, the mind reflects what it knows. Here's what I'm knowing. Here's what I'm understanding. Over and over again, moment by moment. And that reflection or that expression is this. This is the reflection of the mind. So instead of thinking, you know, I'm seeing the world, we're actually seeing a reflection of the mind, which may or may not have anything to do with the world. Clearly, we know the experience where we have a a reflection that later we find has absolutely nothing to do with what what everybody else thinks happened. You know, the consensual reality didn't match the mind's projection. You know, I thought you were insulting me. You know, but later, you know, in talking to the person, we realized, no, they weren't insulting us. So maybe, you know, our reflection or our, the mind's projection was just that. It was the mind's projection. But that's what we know. That is our experience. This mind's reflection or this mind's projection. So once we, you know, one way or another, we need to get interested in the mind. We need to respect its relevance. And we have to have this profound humility, how little we understand about the mind itself. And it's actually quite appropriate to see it as some kind of mystery, something that can't quite be grasped. Because when we try to nail it down with a concept, oh, this is what the mind is, Well, that concept, that idea, will never be the mind. The mind can only be experienced. It can't be encapsulated with some thoughts or ideas or image. This is the mind. We begin to, we begin to, like, get interested in this dynamic. Like, even right now, this is as relevant of a moment to understand the mind as any moment. This is one of the great things about this investigation of the mind. And you see how, all of a sudden, the experience that's being known is less relevant than the fact that an experience is being known here in the mind. That is the relevant fact, that it's this is being experienced here. It's being known. And sometimes what's being known is interesting, sometimes it's boring, sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But it's really relevant that it is being known here and now. That there is a mind knowing. And in Thai Buddhism, Thai, the Thai Force tradition, this is very, uh, very much emphasized, the difference between what's being known and the knowing. And, and often the knowing is uh, called or named as the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who knows. What does the Buddha know? The Buddha knows the way it is. And in this dynamic, you know, in this very direct, immediate reflection or uh, deepening understanding of the psychology of mind, this 
movement of mind, this dynamic of mind, we begin to understand some things. Like we begin to understand how what's being known is relatively speaking unimportant. Not, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's relatively unimportant and it's always uncertain. I mean, even today, if we could just line up one after another all of the thoughts, mind states, all the things that were known, boom, 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 we would see so clearly how ephemeral, like how many things have rolled through the mind. So just to use an image, like to see like there's a space of the mind, and in that open space of the mind, phenomena, experiences come rolling through, tumbling through. This is known, this is known, this is known, this is known. We think highly of something, we think badly of something, we love ourselves, we hate ourselves, we're irritated, we feel happy, we're bored, we're excited. How many states have rolled through today, this week, this year, this decade, these decades? So, experience, what is being known, is so ephemeral, uncertain. And yet, when we're not reflecting in this way, the tendency of the mind, through some kind of self-importance, is to feel like whatever is arising now, whatever happens to be tumbling through the mind now, presenting itself now, is relevant in some important way. But it's just part of this endless tumbling forward of thoughts, images, sensations, sounds. One of the things Ajahn Chah teaches is um, this great Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, um, died in the early 90s, but was... uh, a teacher of many people who now are teaching in the West, and uh, he would invite his students to, almost like a mantra, to have a sense to name or to remind themselves, not sure. You just put that phrase, not sure. Or Thich Nhat Hanh, another Buddhist monk in the, from Vietnam, suggests the phrase, maybe not so. So we... You know, we're here at Common Ground hearing a talk, and maybe we're feeling somewhat inspired. And that voice of wisdom says, well, maybe not so. Meaning, now you're inspired. In another moment, maybe you think it's hogwash, you know, and then inspired, and then bored, and then hogwash, and, and everything else. And so, just to keep reminding ourselves to somehow loosen that tendency of the mind to grasp the current idea, the current projection, the current opinion that it might have. We have pain in the knee. The mind doesn't like the pain in the knee. All of a sudden, that has so much self-importance, the fact that there's pain and I don't like it. And it feels like this huge thing. But we've had a body with unpleasant sensations for a long time now. And those sensations have come and gone, always replaced by the next moment's experience of sensation. 
So it's not that the pain in the knee is irrelevant, but it doesn't need to be charged in the way that we tend, the mind tends to charge whatever is presenting itself in the moment. There's a story that I remember somebody telling, I don't know if it's really true, but it's a fun story in any case. Um, and I think the way the story went, there's a, a classroom of elementary school age children. Um, I think it was at a, a retreat center uh, in the foothills of the Sierras in California, if I'm remembering correctly. I have a friend who's one of the managers there, and uh, they have a live-in community, people who live there and run the place, and then they also operate as a, a really nice retreat center where people go to learn yoga and meditation and other spiritual practices. And any day, they have a local school just for their community and for other local kids, and their teacher was showing a film, and everybody, all the kids were watching the film, but... One little boy was looking back at the projector, and the teacher said, what are you doing looking at the projector? And the little boy says, I'm more interested where the pictures are coming from. And it's a little bit what we're doing. It's like we could be, mostly we're completely entranced by the projections, by what's tumbling through the space of the mind, the sensations and our opinions about the sensations, what we're seeing, and our perceptions, our ideas about what we're seeing, what we're thinking, and our proliferations around what we're thinking, that's what gets our attention. But through the process of mindfulness, wisely comprehending the way that it is, <coughs> we can get more and more interested in the space where this drama is playing out, the space of now, the space of the present moment, or the space of the mind, the heart. And what supports that transition or that powerful shift is this uh, uh, reminding or of our reminding for ourselves that whatever is being known, the objects that are being known, are uncertain. They're not sure. Maybe not so. Because if we every time a sensation is being known every time a thought is being known, every time an image is being known, if somehow we could skillfully remind the mind, this is just something being known. This is just part of this endless process of phenomena being known. One after another being known. And this phenomena that's being known now will very soon be replaced by the next phenomena that's being known. And then the next and then the next, and then the next. And when we have that sense, no particular phenomena captivates the mind, sort of generates that self-importance, that clinging or grasping, which Buddha says is the root of all suffering. It's when the mind mistakenly grasps the current projection, whatever that might be, I'm bored, and the mind grasps it as if that idea, I'm bored, relates to me in some deep, permanent sense, and therefore I should feel impacted and respond from that impact, respond from that self-centered place. But the more we realize that life, the movement of life, is this endless arising and passing 
of phenomena being known. And that will continue, continue, continue. Then the mind gets interested in the process of change. In the process of uncertainty. Because that's actually more relevant from a, from the Buddhist point of view, like as we sort of settle into any moment of our life, we might think that, you know, and now we describe what's going on. We may think that's what's important. But the Buddha would say, it's not so much the conditions that are being known that are important, but that the conditions that are being known are uncertain, ephemeral, changing. That's actually a more relevant fact. And that the fact that they're changing make the experience unsatisfying for a sense of self. Because when we're operating from a sense of self, we want solid ground. We want to nail something down that we can count on. We want a mate that we can count on. We want him or her to be the way we expect our partner to be. You know, we want safety. We want shelter. We want... And we and we don't just want it like in this moment. We want to be able to count on it. Being there. But that's not how it is. You know, things are ever-changing. So... These are the three characteristics uh, that the Buddha suggests as skillful means. So there we are, and we're using these three characteristics to keep the mind, to support the mind from fixating on what's being known. And instead, to be interested in the underlying nature of what's being known, that it's impermanent, coming and going ceaselessly that it's unsatisfi- unsatisfactory. In fact, the only thing we can do in life is create suffering and not create suffering. I like this definition, like, what is a human being capable of? You know, as a human being, we're capable of two things. Creating suffering, creating the experience of stress, or not. And the thing is, uh, we always feel like we're moving in the, re- the direction of release or happiness. But when it's coming from that wrong view, from the point of view that this condition i got to get rid of, what's well, already going away, or this condition I have to hold on to because I like it, well, it's already going away. So any attempt to do something from that self-centered point of view creates suffering. But allowing everything to move, including our personality, and this is an important point, people always ask, well, wouldn't that mean you're just going to be passive, the sort of eternal doormat of the world, and things just happen, and you let it all happen? No, because part of what's moving is our response to everything that's being known. So the Buddha teaches these three skillful means for letting go. Seeing the impermanent nature, seeing the unsatisfactory nature, and seeing the impersonal nature of this endless movement of one thing being known after another. Phenomena coming and going, tumbling onward. So you can experiment with this in your day, in your set. 
you know, you're sitting and, you know, one of the things I notice at the beginning is that my body hurts. It takes a while to settle before somehow the mind finds a peaceful way to relate to the body. But initially, you know, just the cumulative stress and um, old injuries and all that, when the mind sits down and is, becomes relatively still, then this sort of what normally is not noticed then becomes rises to the surface and it's noticed. And there can be like a is very relevant agenda. Okay, now take care of the body. Release that tension, fix that, adjust that. But that never ends. And what, you know, over the years, 30 years now, slowly, through a lot of trial and error, learning that the fact that the mind sees the body sensations as a problem, that, like every other projection of the mind, every other condition that's being known, will come and go. So... I don't need to necessarily believe that thought that the sensations of the body are a problem right now, Mark, and you better take care of it. Because that thought will come and go. Or another common thought to come up over the years of my practice is, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Have you seen that in your mind during a meditation? Like, what the heck is this about? What am I supposed to be doing? And we, we can experience, I mean, a very real sense of confusion. So I'm not, not pretend confusion, but actual confusion. Actually, apparently, not knowing the first thing about what we're doing, even though we sort of thought we knew, but in this moment, there's no clarity. And I noticed that over the years, that's a very seductive experience to know. It just seems so compelling that I now do something to fix this problem, to know what I'm doing, what meditation is about. Like, give me an object to put my attention to, because the experience of not knowing what I'm doing is so unpleasant to the mind that's identified with being the one who knows what he's doing. You know, I'm a teacher of this practice, for goodness <laughs> sake. Surely I must know what I'm doing. But I've learned over the years to just allow that thought to come and go. I don't need to get identified. I don't need to grasp that thought because it's just something that comes and goes. It's uncertain. It's impermanent. It's unsatisfactory. The only thing I can do with that unpleasant thought is create suffering out of it. That's the only thing I can do. I can either just let it come and go or I can identify with it and create suffering. Sometimes unpleasant thoughts arise. And when unpleasant thoughts or unpleasant sensations arise, the thing to do is let them arise and cease. But by grasping it, taking it personally, we personally, in a sense, create suffering. More stress. More dukkha for ourselves. So we observe, we remember these three characteristics. These aren't truths in some absolute sense. They're skillful ways to support the mind from grasping. You know, the practice of non-grasping. This is what Ajahn Chah calls Nibbana. 
you know, you know the word nirvana or nibbana, it's the word that's used in the Buddhist tradition to point to the, the goal of practice, freedom. Freedom from greed, anger, and delusion. And the way that Ajahn Chah, this teacher, this Thai teacher, defines nibbana as the reality of non-grasping. So, the reality here and now of non-grasping, the experience of non-grasping. So as that doubt or confusion arises, as the, um, the not liking the physical pain in the body arises, as the thinking that we know what we're doing, that thought arises, we need to realize the reality of non-grasping. And the supports are recognizing that what's Arising is something that's uncertain, it's impermanent, that it's unsatisfactory. Everything, even pleasant experience is unsatisfactory because it comes and goes. So even if there is a beautiful mind state, a beautiful state of concentration or calm in our meditation, it is also something that's coming and going. So in terms of the self, it will never be satisfying because it's coming and going. And all we can do with that pleasant experience is ruin it by grasping it. We can, when really nice things happen to us in life, the best thing to do is not grasp it. Then we get the pleasantness that is there, and in a poignant way we understand that it can't be grasped. That breaks the heart in a really beautiful way. And we avoid the unnecessary suffering of wanting it to last when nothing lasts, everything comes and goes. So whether it's a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience, we see it's changing, we see it's unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, and we see it's impersonal. That it's coming and going, I'm not in control of. That's what we mean by impersonal, that what's coming and going is following its own lawfulness due to the many, many interdependent causes and conditions everything that's at play. And this is true with our emotions and our thoughts and our sensations, let alone the things external, what we call external, like what we see, what we hear out there, what we experience in our life. But even our thoughts and emotions, they are also very much impersonal. Otherwise, we would not be having the thoughts and emotions we have. We would get behind that driver's seat and make the mind or make our experience the way we want it to be. But clearly, I don't know about you, but I'm not in control. Thoughts come and go due to the various causes and conditions that are, all, that are at play in the moment. I want to read a little bit of Joko Beck before we end. She's a wonderful Zen teacher, was the head of the San Diego Zen Center for many decades, died recently. I think she was like 91 or so when she died. Let's see, she was 81 in 1998. She died like two years ago. So, yeah, so she was in her, like almost 93 maybe, when she died. Really wonderful teacher. She has a couple good books you can find. Everyday Zen and uh, Ordinary Zen maybe. Anybody know the other book? Something like that. Let me just read a couple passages and then I'll open it up for discussion. So she's being interviewed. The interviewer says, 
You you use several images for experiencing pain rather than running from it. Stretching out on an icy couch, moving onto the razor's edge, excruciating images. And she answers, but they're not excruciating. The minute you experience what you've been running from, for instance, suppose you've been humiliated. Well, nobody likes to be humiliated. It's one of the yuckiest feelings in the world. We want to pretend it didn't happen. We want to blame someone. To turn around and just to feel that act. But part of what sitting does in time is give you the strength to stay with it. And after a while, surprise, it's okay. And then it's not only okay, but it begins to change things. It's as if the sun comes up. And this is this big potent change, life-transforming change. As long as the mind, the attention, is directed towards the objects that are being known and is trying to put together safety for this sense of self, this separate self, in a lasting way, then we're really screwed because we'll never be able to create what the self apparently needs, that permanent safety, that solid ground. But the more that we turn toward our life and see things coming and going and see the unsatisfactory nature of what's coming and going and the impersonal nature, lo and behold, we can really connect. We don't need to distance. We don't need to control or fix. And... Now, what the mind is realizing is because it doesn't have to create, doesn't have to depend on ideas of good and bad that separate, that divide up the world, the mind now realizes the world as a whole, undivided way, not separate, not broken apart. There's so much freedom in that experience. But it, it depends, that, that experience depends on the letting go of the mind's, the mind letting go of its fixation on the object, not liking this object, liking that object, and realizing instead the changing nature, the impermanent, impersonal nature. And that's what really opens the heart to something that's beyond these fixations. We don't even know what that is, to be truthful. Because our whole life has been built upon one fixation after another. we That's all we do is we replace one fixation with the next. The mind reacts to this experience, and then it reacts to the next experience, and then it reacts to the next experience through the process of liking and disliking. But when we notice, when we pay attention instead to the changing nature, the mind is liberated from that inefficient approach to living. Joko Beck goes on, she says, see that, see that, see that that is the gate to enlightenment. When you practice like that thousands of times, you're a different person. There's a true transformation, and that's what practice is about. And she goes on to say, it's true because it wipes out self. There's nothing left but openness. Not happiness, but openness, joy. Joy can also be sad. Perhaps you've had a grandmother die, 
she dies peacefully in a way that is wonderful. In a way, it's wonderful. It's time. There's no conflict about it. There's even joy, because that's the way it is, and that's fine. Later in the article, somebody asked, the interviewer asks, how does someone begin to see emptiness? She was talking about the problems with expectations, so that's, that's why the person's asking this question. I don't think you see it. You have to be it. Right? So emptiness, in Buddhist terms, is just another word for freedom. Emptiness, in Buddhism, we, implies the emptiness or the cessation or the absence of greed, aversion, delusion, or the absence of fixation, grasping. I don't think you see it. You have to be it. You have to, like Ajahn Chah says, you're realizing the reality of non-grasping. You have to be it. Emptiness simply means an absence of reactivity. When you relate to somebody, there's not you and me and your little mind running its little comparisons and judgments. When those are gone, that is emptiness. And you can't put it into words. That's the problem for people. They think there's some way to push for an experience such as emptiness. The practice is not a push towards something else. It's the transformation of yourself. I tell people, you, can, you just can't go looking for these things. You have to let this transformation grow. And that entails hard, persistent daily work. Right? And that daily work is that sitting in the moment, observing, knowing that phenomena are arising and being known, noticing the very strong habit to want to grasp that object, to like it or to not like it, to want to find happiness with something we like, to want to find safety by getting rid of what we don't like, to see that very strong habit and not following it, but just let the object come and go by remembering it's uncertain, it's unsure, it's impermanent, it comes and goes, it's impersonal, grasping hurts. She goes on, she gives an example. I simply wouldn't let an irritable thought go through my mind without noting, oh, that's interesting, what's going on here? I don't mean analyzing it, but just stopping. There has to be that ability to stand back and say, yeah, interesting that I do that. Right there, I may go back to it if I'm busy talking to you, but it's been registered. It's not good or bad, it's just, an interesting, it's just interesting to note that you do that. So I'll leave it here so that we have 10 minutes or so to check in about our practice. You might have questions about the talk tonight, or you might have some examples from your own practice you'd like to share with the group. What comes to mind? Yeah, go ahead. Sometimes we think, I say, well, there is no bad, it's just this is how it is.
Yeah, yeah, and you described it really well. And and uh, the basic point, I think, in what Clint is saying is that thinking about the practice and thinking about the implications of the practice is different than the actual practice. And that's really important because we can't think our way to right view. We can have a general conceptual understanding of right view, but that's not actually right view. It's a conceptual understanding of something we're calling right view. Like uh, somewhere I was reading tonight, that, uh, or Joko Beck maybe, just what I read recently, emptiness is something you become, or you, you're, you be empty, you know, you have to be empty. Or we have to realize the reality of non-grasping. It's not enough to know that non-grasping is the way, although it's, it could be helpful to know that non-grasping is the way to get that information and to be able to recall that information can be useful. But what's actually relevant is to begin to discern directly in our experience the difference between the mind that's grasping and then the mind that's not grasping. To really be able to recognize both of those things. And so, like, when I find myself thinking like that, the key then for me is in that moment to enter the practice mode, which is thoughts are being known. These thoughts are uncertain. These thoughts come and go. These thoughts are not self. Any identification, any self who's trying to get some meaning from these thoughts, or an answer, that would be some kind of meaning, is going to experience dukkha, stress. We can't, there is no way, this is, this is important, there's no way that you can extract safety or happiness from phenomena. I know it seems that way. We go home, we have our comfortable bed, or we have whatever might be awaiting us at home, a good friend. And it seems that we're getting something from that experience. But what is actually happening is the mind's anxiety of not being safe, which is something the mind is constructing, creating, before it gets home, then the mind, when it's home, stops creating that. And so it feels the absence of that anxiety. We might think, I'm not anxious because I'm at home, but we're really not anxious because the mind isn't, in that moment, identified with anxiety. It's identified with safety. But both the anxiety and the experience of safety are just experiences that come and go. But the mind is making the uh, kind of drawing the wrong conclusion, thinking that it's the thought or the experience that's delivering the pain or delivering the safety, the good feeling. So we're misunderstanding life. And this is what I meant about that major paradigm shift when we understand the centrality of the mind itself and the experience we're having in life. We think it's so much the life that is determining how it is for us. And we need to shift, because otherwise we can't practice. We need to understand that it's the mind itself that's relevant here, not where we are, who we are, what's happening in our life. Yeah. 
How the mind is relating, or what the mind is doing now. So not not the concept or the idea or the activity that's being known, but what's the mind doing in the knowing? What's it doing with that knowing? Is it trying to derive some security for the sense of self from that knowing? Is it letting it be, non-grasping? What's the mind doing with the knowing? And you, you understand why there are terms or teachings in the Buddhist tradition about that, that sound like it's rejecting the world. Because it's, it's a radically different relationship to the world. But it isn't a rejection of the world. Because the rejection of the world is also an identification with the world. Because it's the world that I have to let go of. I'm going to grasp the world in order to let go. So they're still grasping, you know, in order to get rid of it. But it's just letting the world, letting nature be nature. That's really this this practice. So letting what we call Clint, who's trying to figure out the meaning of life, just letting that happen, but being interested in the mind, and from that point of view of the mind, then the Clint, who's trying to figure out the meaning of life, is this natural, ever-changing unfolding. Yes, it is. <laughs> Other thoughts? I cut to my ear. Lewis. I'm thinking of, um, I'm beginning to uh, think about things like happiness and say how many other places we're talking about. Thinking about happiness like a Child that's not really on the road, and that it's it's more important. But because things like things like happiness are really constructions, like it's their ideas, and they're not places that you arrive at. Really. Yeah. Um, and. And if happiness is anything, it's about being okay about being on whatever this journey is. And maybe perceiving that all the forms that we see, whether it's this body or this room, it's only stuff that's in transition, that's changing. I mean, it's not fixed. Yeah. And I think I tend to get hooked or to fixate on things. It's about my reaction to uh, an idea or a, or an experience that's happening, which can usually like fear, anxiety, uh, those kind of things can keep me kind of stuck in a place that I don't really want to be in, but it's the yeah. Yeah, I hear you. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. And the, the question is, can we, uh, are we willing to let go of that drama? You know, and just let it move. Let life move. 
And that's why sometimes it's better to use a different word. Some teachers, you know, they, they make happiness as problematic as unhappiness. And then they, they just come up with a different term altogether, maybe call it peace or release or nibbana. You know, so the, a different word to describe the aspiration for the practice. So it's not about happiness because that always implies a fixed state, as you suggested. You know, I am safe from unhappiness. As opposed to peace or release or nibbana, which is things are moving through pleasant and unpleasant states, but there's nobody having a problem. The mind isn't creating a problem about this natural flowing on of life. It's realizing peace, a peaceful coexistence with everything that's moving, everything that's unfolding. And lo and behold, moving in that direction, developing in that way, uh, you know, just on the level of personality, that it's such a blossoming of the personality, like the different conditions, uh, habits or conditioned habits of the mind, they just get more beautiful when we orient in that way. Because all of the mean and, and unskillful aspects of our personality are different ways that we're fixing or grasping. But when we've given that up, what's left in the personality is a lot of joy and love and generosity and playfulness and, and compassion. And so that's what more and more is manifesting as things just tumble on. And, and in a sense, the refuge is resting in the non-grasping of what's moving. And more and more, that thing that's moving is beautiful, you know, characterized by love and compassion, as opposed to neurotic stuff. Thanks for bringing that up. Time for maybe one more comment, if anybody else has a last thought or question. Or maybe we'll leave it here.